Welcome to Day 2 Cloud and today, monitoring. And you just went, skip, fast forward, blah, blah, blah. Nope, don't want to have this conversation. Boring. Not boring. Not boring. Seriously. Um, this mm -mm. guest knows monitoring deeply, understands how to integrate in cloud native environments, microservice environments, and we have a pretty... Well, Ned, I think as we were talking about it after, you used the word uh, a riveting conversation. Riveting. I did use that word. And you can call me a, a monitoring skeptic. Not that we don't need monitoring, but I was skeptical that it would be interesting as a conversation. And it just completely changed my mind. It was, it was actually a riveting conversation where we dug into what's necessary if you actually want to monitor things effectively. And that was, I don't know, it was a mind shift for me. I really enjoyed it. Well, excellent. And we think you're going to enjoy it too. So please enjoy this conversation with Josh Barrett at Twilio. Josh, welcome to Day 2 Cloud. It's nice to have you here. In a sentence or two, would you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. Right now, uh, my name is Josh Barrett. I have been working with big computer systems for a very long time, uh, longer than I look old. I'm an architect right now at Twilio, which is a really well-timed company right now because we connect the world with all kinds of different telecommunication uh, via text messages and voice calls and emails and all that stuff. So uh, being an architect there means working with lots of teams to build services that actually meet our customers' goals and can handle that kind of crazy load. And so monitoring is a big part of that, making that happen, which is why I'm excited to talk to you guys about it today. Very good. Um, yeah, and monitoring is a conversation I wanted to have. And, uh, you know, Ned, I know you and I were going back and forth. You're like, monitoring's necessary but boring and i'm like it's not boring, boring. Yeah. it's there's so many cool things to talk about and uh and so josh we're glad that that you could join us today so let, let, let's start it out this way some people seem to think that infrastructure is everything right we got a lot of ops people on this call and they think in terms of servers and vms and containers and you know networking and uh, firewalls and such infrastructure is the thing. So I can scale it up. I can scale it out. It can do all the things. But then you got the flip side. You got people that think about application architecture. I've talked to some companies that do monitoring and it's like, oh, we don't actually kind of don't care about the infrastructure because it's really all about the application. Uh, infrastructure is boring and, and we just kind of assume it works. Now, you're an architect. So how do you think about applications versus infrastructure? Yeah. I mean, the, the flip way of saying it is these days, the application is the infrastructure. So if you've got a, an interesting app where it's on Kubernetes, let's say, and cool, that part is kind of abstracted for you. Well, it doesn't get abstracted for you anymore when your application runs out of file handles or something. So there are places where your application and what it's trying to do will immediately impact the infrastructure and vice versa. Like if your application depends on all the disks being up or a bunch of servers being up, then you care deeply about your infrastructure. And especially if you're using, uh, you know, cloud manage software and things like that, then then it can have a big difference. So yeah, you're basically, if you're solving not toy problems that are really pushing lots of data or trying to do things in a really quick amount of time, then you can't not care about your infrastructure when you're building an application. These cloud applications are effectively chimera of infrastructure and app. Ooh, I like that word, chimera. I'm gonna borrow that sometime. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna hope I didn't mess that one up. I may have to go check my dungeon master's guide and make sure I got that. <laughs> no, I think I think you're good. It's like part Griffin, part Wolf, and part application architecture. If there I we go. Correctly. I, I <laughs> yeah. believe that was in the dungeon master guide. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. I like that you, you you said if you're not solving toy problems. So what do you think of as a toy problem versus the the real world problem that that you might be trying to handle with your application architecture? 
Yeah, maybe toy problem is is dismissive, uh, and I didn't mean that as a slam. But basically, there's lots of very useful things that can drive really meaningful businesses that also could run fine off a Raspberry Pi in the corner. So those are <laughs> those are great problems, and they're excellent to solve. And you probably still want to monitor that, but um, they're not the kind of problems where you're going to hit some of these boundaries where the 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 details of your infrastructure matter. So once you start to deal with like billions of transactions a day, then you probably start to care. And so that's mm-hmm. what I mean by a toy problem is a, a, one of those ones that it works great on your MacBook or it works great uh, on the, on your, in your staging environment, but it might start to show the seams when it sees the full light of day. Hmm. Right. I- you made this assertion that the application is the infrastructure, um, and, and kind of the two are inseparable. There's a, there's a very tight coupling. They're they're somewhat interdependent, um, but yet there might be this siloed mindset that people have. So, do you think of monitoring applications as a thing and infrastructure as a thing, or is it more like it's unified um, the way that you you look at the application delivery system? Yeah, it's very unified. I, we think about. Again, it's unified when it has to be. When you, if you can get away with it not being unified, then that's great. Take the win. Uh, but for most cases, we tend to think about service ownership in at least the last few places I've worked in a DevOpsy way, which is a team owns a service and owns the uptime of that service, and they should go as deep in the stack as they need to to be able to actually own that uptime. Um, so depending on where you're at and how mature the platform is underneath you, you may or may not be able to... like. I, if I'm going to own my own uptime and I'm on AWS, then I can't care about what the actual SSDs look like because I don't have access to that. But I can. there's a lot of things that I can control north of that uh, as an application operator and builder slash operator slash owner uh, that are going to impact that. So they're tightly coupled as an architect gives me hives. I, we still like to keep things <laughs> uh, loosely coupled, but they are... Uh, codependent, maybe. No, that's probably another not not a good term. <laughs> uh, my psychiatrist wouldn't like that one. But uh, you can't. Yeah, they're inseparable once they're in production because they they influence each other in mm. pretty key ways, at least at scale. You used a, a programming term in there, uh, the loosely coupled versus tightly coupled thought, and uh, I'm not sure that all of our ops folks are necessarily familiar with that concept. So could you unpack that a little bit? Because I think it's going to be important to how you approach monitoring. Sure, yeah. So tight coupling is, one smell test for tight coupling is if I make a change in one part of the system, I have to make changes in other part of the system so that the changes all work. That's a sign that your system is tightly coupled, basically. Changing something in one area impacts another area in a way that you wouldn't have necessarily expected. So, uh, and loosely coupled is if I need to make a change, then I probably have to make one change in one place. So the more that's true, the more your stuff is, you can think about it as loosely coupled. So that shows up a lot in monitoring. Like we, there's some inherent tight coupling. If I add a new thing that I can monitor on an application, then I probably have to go add that to my monitoring system. There's some coupling there, but some coupling is necessary and essential. Uh, but right, yeah, right. the more that the more that you can vector towards loose coupling, the more you're able to. Uh, I'm going to drop another programming turn that people hate, but you, the more you can be agile, <laughs> because the less you have to coordinate your changes. A, a, a lot of times in bigger companies, 
Uh, tight coupling also means horrible project management because you got to make change. If you've got a team that does monitoring and you, you have a team that runs an application and you add a new thing that needs to be monitored and that means you have to open the ticket for them, then that's painful tight coupling and it means everything you do is going to slow down. So right. it's a problem at an organizational level and then it becomes a problem even to the like how you write a small piece of software. So this gets... You're defining a monitoring philosophy here that maybe is different than some folks are used to, especially if they have lived in that siloed environment that we've referred to. So perhaps a good question to ask is, um, how should we think about monitoring from a standpoint of questions? What questions should monitoring be answering for us? Because, okay, we all, we all have those dashboards with a lot of graphs and alerts and stuff, but but what's the ultimate goal uh, philosophically behind it? Man, this is really esoteric, but uh, that's, <laughs> I think we're going to need that as a foundation. You know, what question should monitoring answer for us? Yeah, uh, I'll start that with the the kind of emotional job that I wanted to do. When the One of the first times that I was running a very, very large clustered system, uh, it was falling over and the CEO was yelling and the customers were yelling and some of them were household name customers. And uh, it was not a good look for anybody. And at the time, I had this uh, abrupt flash of a vision of like, I feel like I'm in a small airplane flying through the Himalayas in a storm and the windshield is spray painted black. Like, <laughs> this is terrifying, <laughs> right? Like, so I don't know what's happening and I'm, I, cr I keep crashing into things and I feel like I'm going to die. Uh, so the sort of emotional job that I want monitoring to do for me is to let me actually see and understand my system that I'm responsible for so that it does the job that uh, my boss wants it to do, my customers want it to do, my shareholders want it to do. So drive that feedback loop. So we actually know what's happening in the system. That's the key thing. So what our systems, our, our customers care about and our other people inside our business care about, like reliability and security and performance, all that, whatever they care about, monitoring is the, the what lets me know if I'm doing that or not, and if not, where and what the problem is. But do you want right. the monitoring system to make inferences about the data or just present the data to you? Uh, I definitely want the monitoring system to let me know if I've dropped the ball. So we talk about those as SLAs and SLOs. So, so like if, if my... If I'm saying, listen, when a customer calls this endpoint, I want it to return within 100 milliseconds, and I'm not doing that, then I want to know about that. That's an SLA. So that's definitely something I want to know. And internally, we might be like, yeah, we promised our customers 100 milliseconds, but really, we want to always try to have it under 50. And that's an SLO. And that's, that's what we're trying to hit. So I want to know if I'm at that point, too. And then I want to know as much as I can about, okay, well, if it's normally 50, and right now it's 70, why? Um, so yes, the inferences would be fantastic, but uh, at the worst case, the kind of the first level is is let me know when I'm past those lines or near those lines. Next level is give me as much information as you can so I can perform an inference about why. Um, and then if you want to get even more fancy, then uh, yeah, actually tell me why is the high dream there. So again, back to our monitoring philosophy, it's not necessarily that we're expecting the system to tell us uh, you know, root cause exclusively, there's still an element of we're a human that needs to understand the system and use this data to help us figure out what the problem is. Absolutely. Yeah. I, I like to think about them as cyborg software. Like uh, it's not, it's, it's on, like a heads up display or whatever. It's not 
solving the problem for me, but it's it's doing as much legwork as possible to give me the information to use uh, my big meaty brain. Uh, not me specifically, but anybody's big meaty brain, <laughs> the stuff that our brains are still slightly better at than computers, unless you spend millions on machine learning uh, to, to actually make that decision. Yeah. Give me all the context that you possibly can so that I'm not SSHing into boxes and uh, pulling SNMP counters. Right. It goes back to that analogy you made where you're flying through the Himalayas and all of your instrumentation and all of your senses are deadened. You can't detect anything, so you can't make any decisions. What you want is all those monitors or, or all those sensors on your dashboard giving you information, being able to see out the windshield and any other senses you can get. And then you're the, the central command that's actually flying the plane and getting it where you want it to be. But you can't do that without enough information. Yeah, I'm still I'm still the one at this point in time on the joystick. <laughs> and and in modern cloud systems, that's actually changing, right? Like what I'm steering. If I'm using like a serverless platform and a serverless database or whatever, then a lot of those things are flying themselves. Uh, there's a lot of autopilot happening that I don't have to deal with under the hood. And in a larger company, that might still be true. Like if you're running something on a Kubernetes cluster that you don't manage, then same deal. Uh, but there are still some things that that so that's that's where the philosophy comes in, which is like it's not that I have to know how fast every write is happening to disk because I may not be able to know that or care about that or control that, but I need to know the things that actually are in my control, which influence my software's ability to meet its goals. You brought up something that we did want to to talk to unpack a little bit. Uh, you you've mentioned it twice. The difference between something that's deployed in the cloud and you're relying on these sort of cloud native services versus something where you own the metal, you own the whole stack. So how would you sort of approach those two different problems from a monitoring perspective, the, the cloud native platform as a service versus you own the metal all the way down? Yeah, for sure. Uh, it's basically the same philosophy and different tactics. So hmm. philosophically, if I'm building a serverless app that's running on DynamoDB, and I, I, I literally don't know anything about any of the hard drives that are involved. So I don't have to care about them or think about them. Uh, but I do have to care about what's the concurrency of my Lambda? What's the failure rate of my Lambda? What's the, uh, how, how quickly are, am I responding to connections? There's a bunch of stuff I do have to care about. Uh, if I'm in the data center, then I really want to know probably if a drive failed and hopefully it's not an emergency because it's redundant or redundant machines or whatever. But I, those are the primitives that I have to care about that I'm responsible for to keep from crashing into the mountain. So it's the difference is basically what's in my span of control. What do I need? What am I responsible for? And what do I need to have? What does my app need from me to keep being in its happy place? So it's just the details are different, but the idea is the same. But even when the right. idea is the same here with the, with a cloud native app, it feels like that's kind of scary. Here, you're using this baz of whatever flavor, and uh, you need to monitor that. I don't know how to monitor that. What am I supposed to be monitoring? So is it you end up you know learning by the school of hard knocks? Ah, that blew up. And if only we'd been monitoring this metric, we would have seen that coming. Yeah. So. Uh... As usual, there's two ways to learn things. One is the hard way, and the other is from other people's learning at the hard way. Uh, <laughs> so with the past stuff, like it depends on the past that you're working with. Some of them are frustratingly opaque, and some of them are actually pretty 
excellent at capturing the things that matter. So uh, we found this even within AWS, for example, like EBS, when it first started out, we got we had multiple production outages with EBS in part because it had this magic token bucket where if you hit it too hard, you would run out of credits. Hmm. But that data was not exposed. So all of a sudden you would have an application be like, happy, 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 very unhappy. <laughs> and it was for reasons that didn't show up on anything that was observable or, at all. So uh, about a year after this started to be a big pain point, AWS actually added that to CloudWatch. And so now that's just something you can uh, monitor and react to. So uh, some things are, it, the data is just not there and it still can bite you. But other things are, you know, especially on a heavily used PaaS, if you're not coming to it the day that it gets announced, then they've probably found a lot of those sharp edges already. So um, the metrics that they're publishing or the metrics that are available are probably pretty close to the ones that you want slash need to pay attention to. Although it sounds like you need to pay attention to it. In other words, I can't just trust the cloud provider to handle the monitoring for me of their various services that I'm consuming and then tell me when things aren't going well. Uh, yes, that is a hard no on that one. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> uh, no, uh, there's a running joke. Uh, there's an a, there's actually a Chrome extension out there that is, I think it's called Honest AWS Status or whatever, and it's it takes things like elevated latency and translates it to everything is on fire. <laughs> uh, <laughs> they, <laughs> you, there's the question of will your cloud provider actually put something on their status page when there's a problem? Uh, if they are, how honest are they going to be about it? And uh, beyond that, like they're certainly very rarely going to notify you or auto remediate. So, absolutely, a lot of you know, the AWS is a good example. They like to get on stage and say everything fails all the time, and we give you the tools to work with that, but uh, we don't stop it from happening. So, within AWS, if you run a well-architected review or something, they're gonna, which is a formal process they have where you can go through and look at your your application, they're going to be like, cool, you want this to be up, then put it in multiple regions and um, manage your synchronization or whatever. So you, yeah, things don't magically just stay up. Uh, the trick is, yeah, that you need to, you need to know yourself what's, what's going on, what's slower than normal. It, there's also things because these things are big shared infrastructure where things might actually be fine. It's just when you started using it, it was running at a certain speed. And then over time, it's still within contract. It just runs half as fast um, because maybe mm. there's more people using that thing. So the way your app responds in a shared environment may change over time in a way that isn't broken. It's just not as luxurious as it used to be. Yeah, so keep those SLAs in mind and you know, also get that baseline of your application so you know what normal looks like. And then when it gets out of normal, you can kind of figure out what changed. Yeah, exactly. And that's an area where, you know, there's a some bright spots on the horizon and some people are already playing with machine learning and other kinds of fancy things to to have a better idea of have the system have your own monitoring know what your own normal looks like and let you know mm -hmm. when it veers off of that, but uh that's still a bit on the horizon for a lot of us, I think. <laughs> yeah, I imagine so. Yeah, I, I do like that. I've gone through that well-architected review, and it seems like all of their recommendations can uh, double or almost double your AWS bill. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh, oh, you want it to be up? Well, you have to put it in multiple regions and also triple your capacity and span four availability zones. It's fine. It'll all work. And you're like, yeah, that'll work, but it'll cost me like six times as much. Yeah. So it's no, also a trade-off. 
for that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. How much is it worth us to have this be super up? Hmm. Which, depending on the app, uh, there are a lot of apps that have moderate to low cost for temporary unavailability. So that's that's right. more of an application architecture thing. But uh, in some cases, it's it's a lot more uh, affordable to have it fail gracefully than to have it always be up. You just don't want that ugly naked 500 error in your customer's browser if you can avoid it. Uh, right. Yeah, that, that negative experience never quite goes away. When the first time a customer sees it, that's going to stick in their brain. Even if it's worked a million times perfectly, that one 500 error is the thing that's going to like just sit in their brain and smolder. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. you don't want to do that. So I'm assuming we're going to monitor a bunch of stuff about our application, some kinds of metrics. And I, I guess metrics probably fall in a few different large buckets or classifications. So from personal experience, can you share what those classifications might be for the metrics we actually want to monitor? Yeah, so a lot of it comes down to some basics. So Google has a framework. If if everyone has not read the SRE book that Google published, it's uh, it's a goldmine of uh, stuff learned the hard way by other people that you wouldn't have to learn the hard way yourself. <laughs> uh, but they talk about the the four golden signals. So it's latency, which is how long it takes you to actually like server request. And you can think about these things at the top level for like my whole app as a service or whatever. Um, what's the latency? What's the traffic? Basically, how much traffic are we handling? Uh, how many errors? As And you kind of look at that usually as a function of the traffic, so errors per request. Uh, and then saturation, like how close to whatever the red line is for us. So that makes sense if you zoom out and look at your whole system as a system. But it also makes sense if you zoom in, like if you're in a situation where you need to monitor a hard drive uh, as part of what you're doing, then that's a good thing to look at too. Like how full, uh, how close to full is your hard drive from a request standpoint and from a volume standpoint. Yeah, and there's another, there's a whole bunch of different paradigms for thinking about that. But basically, if you look at your system, uh, we actually do this sometimes on a whiteboard is like draw a picture of the system and all the things that the application depends on and then go through with a marker and kind of check off the things one by one. It's like, uh, could this fail? What are all the ways that this could fail? And therefore, what are the things about it that we need to measure? Uh, and then you end up being in a pretty decent position. So there's a couple of other ways uh, that people show up. There's the RED, RED, requests request rate, errors, and duration. And then there's also use, which is utilization, saturation, and errors. Those are all kind of distillations of the, the four golden signals ideas from Google. And yeah, that's kind of, when I read that, I was like, oh, this is more or less what I've been doing, but it is a much more elegant way of, of capturing it. So that's my go-to mental model these days. Um, I would also say that uh, the the number one thing in cloud infrastructures to monitor is money um, because <laughs> we've had so many and it, yeah, so it's sort of like separate from operational metrics, but in an area where certain things do auto scale, like the first time that I was shocked by an AWS bill was it turned out we had a script that was reassigning an EIP and it was supposed to be reassigning an EIP only if the EIP wasn't assigned, but it was just always reassigning the EIP. Which it turns out they cost you, they charge, you get a bunch of free ones a month, and then they start to charge you 10 cents a time. And this thing was running 
I think every five seconds. <laughs> so five seconds times 10 cents equals a big AWS bill, especially for a little team that was just getting our, our feet wet. So AWS was nice and they said, it's okay, we'll give you this as a mulligan. But uh, they, yes, it is. It is uh, monitoring your spend is really important because there are lots of ways that you can hemorrhage money. The most common way recently that I've seen is people shipping stuff to prod that had debug logging still turned on. And then you can, whatever your logging platform is, you can blow up a huge bill there really quickly. Um, if you're storing a hundred times more data per request than you plan to. So uh, yeah, wow. Monitor, monitoring your, uh, your spend at the high level is, is pretty key. Hmm. So right. Going back to the golden signals model there, uh, latency, traffic, errors, and saturation. Now you mentioned you can monitor the system as a whole using those signals, and you can monitor individual components using that uh, philosophy as well. Okay, individual components, ops people, infrastructure people, we get that. Give me the thing. I will monitor the metrics about the thing. I'm good at that. But monitoring the system as a whole, how do you how do you get your head around that? I mean, what, how do you change the objects that you're monitoring so that you're seeing the system in its entirety rather than the the pieces and parts that we we kind of know and love as ops folks? Yeah, that's the thing that you have to design in. So, uh, testing and monitoring slash observability are things that are always better to be forethought than afterthought. So. Uh, yeah, if you if you want a system to be testable, design it to be testable. And if you want a system to be monitorable, design it to be monitorable. So typically, a lot of these applications, if they're following microservice EZ type patterns, like that boundary to your service is the API. Um, or it might be like if the service is reading stuff out of a Kafka or an SQS, the boundary to your service might be the queue. So the answer kind of is is specific. But if you're talking about like, an HTTP service that things are responding to, then you might actually track that stuff at the load balancer because that's mm -hmm. the thing that's seeing all of the uh, all of the little workers behind it. Or if you're running, yeah, depending on it, all depends on the architecture. But effectively, there's some point that you can look at, and it's probably a distributed point, and you might have to add a bunch of stuff together. If you're using an architecture where the individual clients are talking to individual service nodes, then yeah, you're going to have to sort of add all of those signals together in your monitoring platform. But yes, that's, it's kind of, if when my customers think about my service, what's the box that they think of? Sometimes that's a blurry, uh, a blurry boundary. And that's a good sign that you have something that's probably not that operable. Hmm. If you can't even define what's in and, <laughs> in and out of the, of the, the rubber band there. I like what you said about the load balancer being a, a possible candidate because of where it's positioned in the traffic flow. And it's got the responsibility to see, like if it's an HTTP app, it is going to kind of know everything that's going on. So you could build a page that you uh, look at for monitoring. Where all this, did all the services report in? You know, I've worked in some environments like that where we actually monitored a page that was indicative of if all of these elements were present on the page, the service is working correctly. And if they're not or there's some components missing, you could parse that out and kind of drill in from there you know, what was going on. But it was more of that system view rather than individual component view. Yeah, absolutely. The more you can kind of boil it down and give me that top level, very comprehensible, uh, you know, almost slackable uh, instance of like what's actually going on in my system, then the more context you're able to really uh, cheaply 
load up and be able to understand your system and work from there. Well, this kind of leads me to another question then, now that we're going down this road. Should I monitor everything then, like all the metrics, all the telemetry? Because I've heard some people say that that's what you really want to do. You want to get everything because maybe you don't use it all, but if you don't have it, then you can't act on it. So it's better just to gather all the telemetry uh, just in case kind of thing. Do you give thoughts on that? Sure, yeah. Uh, <laughs> my my joke is all the metrics, uh, that's great if you have all the money. So it depends on what you're using for for a way to, to, to store your backplane, but also it metrics are add overhead too, right? So it's always the trade-off dance is like what it, exporting a signal from my system actually adds overhead to my system. So to keep track of a counter, instead of just serving the request, serve the request and bump a counter or send some message out to a system that says a request happened, that's actually more work than I'm asking my system to do. So monitoring isn't free. Sometimes it's very close to free, and those are nice times. But uh, generating the signal has some kind of cost. But then also, even more expensive is uh, transporting that signal, aggregating that signal, persisting that signal, presenting that signal. So uh, all of those things along the along the chain add add cost. And then there's the comprehensibility problem. If I'm trying to look at a system and I see 15 key metrics coming out of that system. I can probably get a good sense for what's going on. If I'm looking at a system and I have 5,500 key metrics, which is an actual number from a system that I helped a team with a couple of months ago, uh, then it's very difficult to understand what's going on because the signal is utterly lost in the noise. So um, I think starting with the key things is great. And then one trick, if if a metric feels like it's in a, I might need this someday maybe, uh, but I'm not sure then you can also log that in a structured log because you can actually go back and dig into those structured logs and with something like Athena or whatever, you can pull that back together and and calculate those values over time. If you're like, oh crap, what were our open file handles? We weren't logging those as a metric, but we were actually throwing them out with the request logs. You mentioned an example, an extreme example of a 5,500 metrics. Um, Is that just because the system was very complex? I'm curious. Yeah, it was a uh, it was a very complex system that was handling. It was just a very high transaction volume system. It's for email actually, so it was a uh, system that was just ingesting a massive pile of emails, and so there was just a lot of things about the request and the incoming clients that they wanted to track. So the fan out there was just massive, um, and it turned out to be uh, maybe not maybe a little too massive to be useful. <laughs> But uh, won't won't AI and ML uh, parse all that information to metrics for us and save us from ourselves? Have you seen that? <laughs> they absolutely could, uh, if if you have a ten million dollar research grant and and uh, <laughs> uh, hmm. no, I, I I seem to have misplaced that grant. But oh, uh, all it. the monitoring companies <laughs> tell me that they have AI and ML that's just going to do all this magic stuff for me. And uh, I mean, I think we'll get to this in a little bit about what your favorite monitoring tools are. But have you seen anything that even approaches taking all the metrics and giving you some sort of intelligible data out of it? No, no, <laughs> not you not with lied to me. <laughs> I, you know what, I, I, I will. If you'd like to look at a specific claim, then we can play Snopes uh, together. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I don't know that, uh, yeah, 
it, there's the old garbage in garbage out thing with uh, with ml as well right like what what are you going to train it on how's it supposed to know what's important mm. or whatever you, even if you're trying to train an ml model you probably have to start with like this is the metric i care about and hypothetically if you did have 5500 metrics coming in it might be able to give you lots of really in, interesting information about how those might be impacting that one metric um but also for us mere mortals with finite budgets, then uh, spending some time thinking about it will probably get you close as well. Okay, that makes sense. So, what what is your approach to building a monitoring system? Would you you know roll your own using all these open source tools that are out there? Would you go with a vendor who's made some bold and dubious promises about what their product can do, or do a combination of both? What's uh, what's your general approach when you're building a monitoring solution? So my general approach when I'm building a monitoring solution is I don't want to ever monitor anything by myself. Uh, so I'd like to have at least six or seven other people monitoring it with me. And depending on <laughs> depending on when I'm uh, doing that, they may have already picked a tool. Uh, so part of it is just kind of doing what you can with what you have and what's integrated into the company that you're working with. I've been in very few, like you get to pick the monitoring tool situations in my life because a lot of times it's like the tool itself is pretty ingrained into what are we using for paging and what are we using for dashboarding and, and graphing so um, my favorite thing to do pragmatically for monitoring is use what we have um, beyond that i really love the cloud native tools i think you guys actually found me because aws got me to to talk about how much i actually like cloudwatch because when you're building services, they just monitor and measure almost all the important stuff, like including the golden signals out of the box for free, quote unquote, for free. You're paying for it as part of <laughs> uh, as part of your service um, fee. The other bonus about something like CloudWatch is because it's in the ecosystem, you're able to use it for other things like driving auto scaling or um, other internal to AWS. Uh, you can use it to trigger like hey, spin up the number of workers I have based on how much how many messages are backed up in this queue. Well, mm -hmm. I don't have to monitor the messages backed up in the queue because that's in CloudWatch for free. Um, anyway, so that's that's kind of the, the vendor approach and the use what you can. But uh, at home, I run Prometheus. Uh, I really like Prometheus's paradigm. So uh, Prometheus is an open source monitoring tool, and it really got me to bust my head open a little bit about push monitoring versus pull monitoring. So in, in the Prometheus world, you run an agent on almost all the boxes or something that a collector, and then the, you run a Prometheus and it pulls those, pulls that data. Um, as opposed to some of the other services I'd used in the past, which are more push, like the, the services have to push things to the monitoring system. So the downsides of the Prometheus par paradigm is you have to know where all this stuff is on the network. Um, and that it has to be able to get to, to all the stuff on the network to have that communication. So you've got a kind of security problem to solve. But the the nice thing about it is for availability, you can just run as many Prometheuses as you want, and they're all doing their own polling. Um, so they all have their own fully accurate copy of the data. You don't need to worry about replication or anything because the last thing you want to have go down is your monitoring system, <laughs> even if everything else is down. Um, and also to be able to play with new configurations or whatever, it's nice to be able to just spin up another one and have it go pull that same data and uh, and it not even be part of the production path, but it's giving its own view into your production data. So now you um, said uh, you know at home I like to use Prometheus. 
as in you were doing this for fun? Because I always think of Prometheus as like kind of a heavy hitter. You use this for large scale applications and so on. But you, you sound like you're using it uh, in a lesser capacity and it's not you're not overwhelmed by the tool. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, no, I had Wi-Fi problems and I worked from home full time have for like eight years. So uh, <laughs> I'm running Prometheus on a Raspberry Pi in my garage and uh, it's been running for a couple of years and it monitors like my upstream throughput and it does automatic speed tests and then it pings all the devices on the network all the time and and tracks all that data so i can see uh what devices where are having trouble and i actually used it to to figure out that what i thought was a cable modem problem was actually a a wi-fi mesh issue and uh yeah and it's just running there all the time so prometheus is actually super lightweight it's just a bunch of little go services that you can run anywhere Hmm. in a simple config but it also handles big boy pants jobs as well. Hmm. Put on your big boy pants, you get some work done. <laughs> <laughs> That's interesting. Uh, usually when I hear about Prometheus, it's almost always in the context of Kubernetes. And maybe that's just because it's part of the CNCF, so there's a lot of overlap there. But it sounds like you're using Prometheus for more than just Kubernetes. I wasn't aware it could do all that. Yeah, no, it's a very well-modeled, composable, generic monitoring system. So, yeah, you can hmm. you can monitor anything with Kubernetes. Oh, sorry, with Kubernetes. With Prometheus Seed, you, <laughs> you poisoned me. Uh, Kubernetes is getting into everything. Uh, but, yes, it's... No, Prometheus is... If you are if you're want to learn more about nicely designed software and good microservice interfaces, actually, Prometheus is, is an excellent thing to take a solid look at because it's... The way they've sort of broken out uh, the monitoring and the metrics capture and the storage and the alerting, Um, it's it's a bunch of really nice interfaces and they all play nicely together and you can plug in anything else uh, that runs the same interface. So people have figured out all kinds of different ways to do metric storage and gathering and all that Mm. stuff. Man, they need a better marketing story then, because uh, the way you've you've just framed it is like I'm firing that up today. Oh, all right, <laughs> yeah, no, get into it. <laughs> Give us some other third party uh, tools. By third party, I mean not a cloud native tool, but just other packages you've worked with that uh, you like for monitoring. Yeah, I mean, Datadog has not let me down. Datadog has uh, been the tool of choice in a lot of the commercial environments that I've I've worked with. So this is I'm not a sponsor, but uh, just have not had too many experiences where I've been like, gosh, darn it, Datadog. Uh, it's, and they, they are actually, you know, I don't know that they're all the way on the AI ML bandwagon, but like they have some correlation features that they rolled out not that long ago and they're pretty handy. Uh, one that I've played with and am a, a very excited about, but would require, I think, a bigger uh, integration push from my company is Honeycomb, which is wide cardinality metrics. So it's kind of like a hybrid of, I'm going to mess this up because I don't, I haven't used it as much as I would have liked to, but uh, effectively lets you, they call them wide cardinality metrics, but it's basically like when I log that a request took one second, I don't say it took one second. I say it took one second from a client in Europe running uh, Microsoft Edge with uh, version five of our software, whatever. Like I track a bunch of other things along with that metric that I'm gathering. Interesting. That aligns with um, uh, with a post that Charity Majors just did on her uh, own blog about 
observability and what observability is. And in, in her own uh, inimitable style, she explained why monitoring numbers is wrong and you got to wrap context. In. And she really was big on the word observability. So you describing uh, monitoring with honeycomb that way makes, uh, makes sense to me. Is it right? It's not just one second. It's one second wrapped around a very specific kind of client request. That context makes all the difference in the world. If you uh, look around on YouTube, Charity has given a lot of talks and they're entertaining and informative. So if you, I've never seen so many glitter, so much glitter and rainbows in a tech talk deck and it's, it's a very welcome change, but yeah, Charity is swearing. Yes. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) Pirate unicorns. Charity. (laughs) Uh, No, but it's, there's a, yeah, Charity is awesome. And the ideas make a ton of sense. And I think they just changed the pricing on their tools if my Twitter feed is up to date too. So if if you've been scared away from Honeycomb before, it might be time to take another look. And it's something that I have always wanted to uh, do more with. But yeah, it's one of those when you work for a large enough company, changing monitoring tools is similar to trying to convert everyone to a different religion. So uh, we, <laughs> it's not it's not an easy shift. I am the Honeycomb yeah, missionary. <laughs> I'd yeah, like to exactly. talk to you about the glory that is observability. Have you heard the good news about observability? <laughs> wow. Oh, <man. laughs> Let's talk about remediation a little bit. That is, uh, monitoring detects an anomaly, so there is a problem. Um, does operating cloud native add automated remediation, or at least useful automated remediation, to um, to the way we might respond to a problem? Or is it still going to, like, here's a problem, figure it out, human yeah, uh, it's not necessarily cloud native. At this point, uh, you if you're running Kubernetes on-prem, for example, then you, you'll get some of the same value, right? So it's not necessarily about the cloud, but I would say modern computing platforms tend to have <clears throat> capabilities for this built in. So the classic example for that kind of auto-remediation would be in the old days, if I ran out of CPU, I was out of CPU. And now if I'm running out of CPU, when I'm at 70% or some number that I choose, uh, auto-scaling groups might bring more CPU online. So there's there's a lot of, or we already talked about earlier, the idea of uh, SQSQs. Like if I've got too much stuff in my queue, it might've been an outage because I was processing it too slow. But now if I've got too much stuff in my queue, I've got more workers processing the stuff in my queue. So there, <clears throat> there are a lot of the cloud native tools, especially DynamoDB has gotten better and better over the last few years about adaptive capacity and and scaling up really quickly in the face of these things. So um, I think the biggest trade-off with that is the uh, your infrastructure can get frighteningly large automatically, but that also means your bill can get frighteningly large automatically if you're not careful, which is goes back to that. Uh, uh, along with everything else, always man- monitor your costs. Right. You, you might want to set a limit on that auto scale group for how many instances it can spin up because I was reading the documentation recently to see what the maximum number was for an auto scale group, and there is no maximum number. It's however many instances are in your quota for that region, and which yep. could be a thousand or more instances. So, yeah, if you don't put an upper limit on that thing, it can it can go uh, out of control pretty quickly. Hey, 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 Ned, Jeff, Jeff's got rockets to build here, so you know exactly. <laughs> True. Yeah. All right, the talk was about dashboards. Um, dashboards come up a lot whenever you're building a monitoring system. Uh, execs seem to love them. Are they just eye candy for execs? Or are there dashboard, let's, let's put it this way, data visualizations that you find operationally useful? 
The idea of a dashboard as a monitoring tool sort of implies that someone is sitting there and watching it, which is not a great use of a human cognitive moment to have to sit there and just stare at a screen. And you're not really focusing on something else and solving a real problem if you're also uh, flipping back and having to keep half an eye on the dashboard. So I don't actually like dashboards as a operational tool when things are normal. Uh, and I don't actually even like dashboards as a first stop when things are abnormal because it's way better to get nice contextual information when you get an alert. Like, show me the micro bit of the dashboard that's relevant to the thing that is not working right right now. But dashboards can be a great way to get quick contextual understanding when you are trying to troubleshoot something. So I think they're worth building, but they're not necessarily <clears throat> useful as a operational tool as much as they are for a quick context in the case of a problem tool. And I think the best dashboards model really closely onto the way that we understand the system itself. So let's say you have uh, one thing that's producing work and then a queue and then something that's consuming that work, then a dashboard that kind of represents that in a comprehensible way that like, here's the thing making the work, here's how much work is waiting to get done, here's the thing consuming it, and think about your request rates and stuff. Even visually, I've I've seen a couple that are very effective like that. Then it, it makes it very simple to understand what's going on. Like, oh, the backup is here. There's a hotspot here. The CPU is overflowing there. Cool. We all immediately look at that and understand the problem. So if you can get a dashboard that gives you that level of clarity and kind of plays the role of those blinking lights inside your Cessna, then that's fantastic when you need it. But I wouldn't use a dashboard as... Um, it's kind of like a, th a third choice. If I had to choose between good contextual alerts and dashboarding, I would choose good contextual alerts every time. Good dashboards are good notifications. I take notifications. The key word there that you said being contextual, that is, you got to understand what the alert means or it's not. <laughs> it's helpful if the system is giving you that context. Let's put it that way, rather than you as the human having to know, ah, you know, if from a networking perspective, this thing went down and that means these other 10 things. You know, if the Absolutely. system is giving yeah. you the context, that's the point you're making. Yeah, yeah. No, we, we uh, the alerts that come into our Slack channels and the on-call channels, like they show maybe the last five minutes of data and they show the the couple hour trend line. So you can see like, yeah, this is the, this is the area where it got weird and this is what it led up to it. And here's some recent changes that were deployed to these services. Like you can give a lot of really helpful context uh, when you're giving a notification, which gives people, again, it's that cyborg software idea, like, hey, computer, go do all the work that you can to give me the best shot at quickly understanding and, pro and probably reacting to what's happening here. I really like the idea of having a visual representation of your application and how it's structured, because if I'm not super familiar with the entire application as a whole, but I'm trying to help troubleshoot, having that context, and we're getting back to that word context, having that visual representation of how it should be functioning and seeing the red where things are not functioning correctly, that, that gives me some sweet troubleshooting instead of just staring at a sea of numbers and pie charts and bar graphs, which doesn't really necessarily tell me anything if I'm not already super familiar with every component. So I really like that, that part of it. It seems it's probably difficult to build, though. I mean, are, is there special software, and, and I don't know if you know this, is there special software to build dashboards that have that sort of visual affect to them? Yeah, uh, I mean, a lot of the commercial dashboard systems actually let you at least put uh, put images in. So that's, sometimes that's what we do is just kind of like put a little 
uh, image of the system in the corner. And so maybe it's not that the image is a heat map for anything, which would be really cool. And I'm sure it's possible. Um, but just that sort of like, here is the context and maybe even some call outs on it so that when you're seeing it, you're like, even if there's a bunch of numbers underneath it, which are like system one CPU, system one disk, system one network performance, whatever, uh, as long as you've got that quick at a glance, like this is what system one does and when, where it fits into our hierarchy. Yeah, it's, I haven't seen a monitoring, a dashboard tool in a while that wouldn't at least let you put an image in. But um, yeah, there are some, there are some that I've played with. It's actually something that I built a custom version of years and years and years ago that like, was probably in Perl. I'm sorry, everyone. Uh, but uh, it, uh, it, yeah, it rendered a PNG based on graphite data, and that was our hmm. kind of go-to tool. So it's possible to do if you care enough. These these hmm. tools that I, I feel like are are something that we don't often throw the software hammer at, um, but the return on your software investment is can be massive, right? Like if you invest in making your system understandable and reactable to, even if it means somebody writes some code, um, then it pays pays off massively in right enough time. Yeah, it reminds me of the old DR problem. Like no one wants to spend on DR until you have a disaster, and then everybody wants to spend on DR. And if you just spent the money ahead of time, you would have saved yourself the headache and all the downtime and all the that, that kind of stuff. But it requires discipline, forethought, and someone who, the person who holds the purse strings to really understand the risk. And I think monitoring, it's the same message. Like if everything's just humming along fine, why should I spend more on my monitoring solution? Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, and and some of these things, the, the things you can do at, at the software level are proportionally cheap. It's like, you know, a couple of days is somebody's time or an afternoon is somebody's time. A question of do how many metrics do I store? Like those start to be a month over month cost too. So mm-hmm. I think investing in the software piece of your monitoring story is, is, is actually a way more effective way to get a return on that investment too, because you're not actually committing to paying a cloud vendor a lot more money every month. If you've just made your process a little bit smarter. Right. You've mentioned microservices along the way in this conversation, Josh. You've mentioned uh, some really complex applications you've had to work on. Um, distributed tracing, is that impacting the world of monitoring, uh, in your opinion? Yeah, I think it absolutely is. It's something that I have not had what I would call a successful engagement with yet, but a lot of that has to do with scale. So um, distributed tracing is to just set level set the term for people that aren't familiar, but it's basically the idea that as a request goes through your system, that there's some kind of ID that goes along with it. And then the different services that interact with it can spit out, they're called spans, but little bits of annotated information that say, hey, when I was working with this request, I did this for this long and this for mm-hmm. that long. Um, and then the distributed tracing system can kind of glue those all back together. And it gives you almost like a, one of those web browser style waterfall charts where you can see, cool, the request came into the system, spent this, this long to authorize it and authenticate it, and then it fell back and hit the database. So conceptually, that is a wonderful, powerful tool, and uh, it, it does work really well. But where it gets tricky is uh, if you think about the difference between in, the old, in an older paradigm where you might have just monitored uh, the, the time at the edge and then aggregate information from all those backend services about like, 
hey, every for the last hundred requests, I had these sort of percentile latencies. That's an easier problem to solve than every single request I have to emit possibly multiple bits of information. So it's back to that trade-off of you're having to spew out and store and process a lot more data. So we found problems. We tried to integrate it with one of our very large systems and it was like, well, you can run it in a statistical mode where it only emits one over N of those signals, but then the number of that you <laughs> that you emit means it's harder to actually trace any of them together, let alone uh, I'd like to be able to go in. Because the golden idea is, hey, a customer got a 500 error and we can trace that 500 error all the way down through the system and see exactly mm. where it blew up, which we can do with correlation IDs already through logging a bit, but it would be awesome to see the latencies along with it. So that's a lot of words to say. I think it's an awesome idea and there's a lot of potential depending on the system. It can take a lot of investment to actually get it working in a way which uh, is awesome. So one of the areas where people do drop it in is kind of early on your in your system, if you're trying to understand your system and kind of getting it to that place where it's a little bit in the stable, keep the lights on, set it and forget it mode, having distributed tracing on early in the process before the traffic super ramps up can be a great way to really understand like, is this working the way that we think it is? And maybe through load testing and things like that, and then keep it as a turn it on when we need it option. Yeah, but leave it on 24, 24, 7, 365, maybe not too much data to, to really deal with. Yeah, and again, for applications where it's worth the overhead and worth the spend, I, I would love, yeah, in a perfect world, I would love to have it for every system all the time. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave it at that. It's just uh, the reality factor so far, and this is partly just a not having probably spent enough time trying to make it work, um, but it's not trivial, put it that way. Well, Josh, mm. the last big question I want to ask you, notifications. So we, we brought this up earlier, and I've been pondering this because the problem I've had with really any system I've worked on is getting the alerting to the right level. You don't want to under-notify and miss something important, and so the tendency is you end up over-notifying, and then you end up ignoring them all because you get a bunch of stupid notifications that you just don't care about. Ah, I see those 50 every morning. Screw that. And then you miss something that's important. So how do you, how do you make notifications useful? Yeah, so I you make notifications useful by treating notifications seriously. So it is never anything that you can let the ball drop. So for our teams that run on-call services, we try to, as often as possible, have like dedicated time every sprint if they're doing agile, but uh, effectively dedicated ongoing investment to improving operational health. And a lot of times that comes down to notifications. So there's a lot of questions you can ask about if a notification went off, like, was that actually the right thing to notify? What <clears throat> caused that to notify? Is there something we could do for auto remediation? Did I notify some, in some cases we'll get an alert, which is if the alert happens at the same time that your auto scaling group is trying to add capacity, then that's not a helpful alert, but it's really helpful to know if your auto scaling group tried to add capacity and it failed. <laughs> uh, so starting to think about like, is this alert something the kind of gold standard is every alert that comes in should be something that requires human action. And anytime that's not true, uh, try to figure out how to make that not the case. So, uh, Dude, that is, there's a lot you just said something super important there, but that is so hard to do. Every alert should be actionable. Wow. Right. Because that's just not the reality for most systems at all. That is super tough. What you just said. 
Yeah, it's that's why that's why I called it the gold standard. Uh, <laughs> not uh, yeah, it's that's that's where I'm always vectoring to, and we're never going to get there. But but understanding that we want to get there as much as possible because look, I value my own sleep. I value the sleep of everybody on my team. Like a- any alert that goes off at three o'clock in the morning blows a big hole in somebody's quality of life and. If I'm just being putting my cynical capitalist hat on as well, like they're probably not going to be giving their A game during the next workday either. And like when when we look at human error, it's like I don't love human error as an incident classification, but you know you got to look at a lot of the incidents you've been in. And wonder how many of these things were which like yeah somebody typoed something. Would they maybe have not done if they hadn't been woken up four times the night before, right? So. Uh, it is a really important thing to keep investing in, even if you're being completely cynical, but even more if you care about the people uh, that are <laughs> that are on your team, that uh, I should wake someone up and and also distract slash interrupt them in the, in the middle of the day only when it's absolutely necessary. So what does it take to get there? Huh. Right. And if, if you treat it with that level of respect when an alert comes in, people are going to jump on it as opposed to just, oh, that goes into the alerts bin and I will check it, you know, in between my next meeting or something that actually gives some priority to your alert as opposed to, I've seen things where where you start out with uh, an A-level cert, uh, notification. Okay, well, that's not high enough. So we'll go give it an AA, uh, but people are ignoring that. So now we'll create an AAA level of certification. Oh, and now there's critical A1 plus top priority. And it's just like, no. You're, you're going the exact opposite direction. Less alerts, more quality alerts make people believe that when an alert comes, it actually means something. Absolutely. Yeah. No, uh, that's the thing. If it's all noise, then you have no ability. You've, you've cut your own ability to have signal that actually gets responded to. Yeah. So if you can't, like so many of our incident or incident learning sessions or whatever they end up with like oh we should have been monitoring this thing and alerting on it and we weren't so let's go add something like that's a common thing is to say cool the problem was we didn't know about this thing uh and we need to know about this thing if it happens in the future but if you multiply that by every every time and so many things are making you want to know about them that you can't really know about anything then that's not even a remediation anymore that's like what (laughs) why bother (laughs) so yeah that's That is a line that uh, I have had to fight for many, many times, uh, kind of with the manager hat on as well. Like, this is a thing that will pay dividends if we invest in, but we absolutely need to invest in it. And it's something that you're going to have to fight for, but it's worth fighting for it. Talk to us about alert distribution. Like back in the day, it was email. We got all this crap in our email, and we wrote our little rules to file alerts into folders. And that's that's old school. Well, I suppose some people still get alerts by email. But uh, but what's your alert distribution preference these days? My favorite is sort of chat op style, right? Like if if alerts come into a Slack channel, paying an on call pager duty, uh, or not to use a, van- a vendor, could be any vendor. Like if there's if they ping one person and then that cascades to that person didn't acknowledge it, so we'll try the next person and then try the next person. So there's this sort of like one thread of uh, how do we make sure that a human being pays attention to this, even despite people maybe sleeping through something. Um, and then the other thread is where do we coordinate around the alert and actually do our response. So having a Slack room or some kind of chat room or yeah, pick your chat platform of choice, but 
doing it in there is actually fantastic because it gives you the ability to collaborate around real time in in old in original ops days there was a lot of times where we'd be sort of multiple independent people diagnosing something and troubleshooting it where so this gives us a known place to collaborate and then it's a log so if you're if you're actually keeping your slack history around it can be super useful to go what happened the last time this went off and then just scroll back a couple of days and then see the conversation that's been out there that can be a great way to sort of cheaply capture context yes documentation is better and we should spend time on runbooks just like we should spend time uh on alerts but uh that is a nice ambient way to see like, oh, this is what the person did the last time they were troubleshooting this issue. So uh, I think that the high contextual alerts in a chat space are the happiest I've been as a way to mm-hmm. organize that that work. Do you rely on a Slack bot particularly in the, the chat ops realm? Yeah, I, I, we think we just use vendor ones. So the the Slack bot I think that we're using now is the PagerDuty one. Yep. Um, but yeah, uh, We've written them in the past, and uh, but yeah, Slack bots are again. That's an area where a little bit of a software investment, even if you end up writing your own software, um, can pay dividends in in your actual team output. Yeah, I'm. Uh, it's a project I'm getting back to, but I started on a Slack bot for uh, for my own company earlier in the year, and just have some very rudimentary functionality now. But uh, but it'll allow us when if the, if I can realize the vision uh, to ask some questions, get back some key metrics, and then be notified of a bunch of things in real time that are happening that we maybe care about. Well, Josh, this has been a uh, an outstanding conversation. You've given us a, a, a lot of your time. The show's gone longer than we usually uh, go, but it's just great to have this opportunity opportunity to pick your brain. But let's uh, let's wrap it up with some action items for people. Give them some takeaways, things that if you want them to be thinking about their monitoring, their notification systems, what are the, I don't know, maybe the top three things you'd like to leave them with? Sure. Yeah. So the top three things are really focus what you're monitoring. So whether it's the the, the four golden signals or the use or the red, whatever model you want to use. And don't forget to monitor your costs. That's the first one is like really try to apply some thinking that system thinking and uh, measuring those key values. Uh, the next one is protect your focus. So anything that's going to interrupt you or need to be looking at a dashboard or whatever, figure out a way to turn that into something where you can actually focus and do the job that you're at your company to do. And the third is protect your sleep. And, and that's related to this alerting conversation we just yeah. had. But like that is uh, for people that deal with monitoring all the time, the sleep trauma is is real and treat it seriously and work with your manager to make sure they treat it seriously because, uh, you, yeah, this is this is your life and, Dude, <laughs> and don't let your pager ruin it. <laughs> The sleep thing really matters. I, I have this memory of uh, working for a, a shop and my boss called me one night and he hated to do it because uh, I'm always super grumpy when you wake me up when I'm asleep. And uh, I can't see that at all. Yeah, he gives me this spiel about something and I just remember saying to him, why are you calling me now? <laughs> I was just so traumatized being woken up in the middle of the night. Protecting your sleep is such a big deal. Such a big deal. Well, again, Josh, this has been great. Uh, and, and, and let's leave it with this. Any other resources you want to direct people to? Do you have a blog, a Twitter handle, anything else you'd like to share? Sure. Uh, I blog sometimes about monitoring, but about all kinds of weird stuff at serialize.net. That's S-E-R-I-A-L-I-Z-E-D dot N-E-T. Uh, and my Twitter handle is just my first initial last name, at Jay Barrett. And 
mostly on Twitter these days, I, I share my pen plotter art, but <laughs> uh, I'd love to have a conversation about anything. Um, and then the other thing uh, to just point people to is if you're interested in monitoring and you want to see kind of cool things that people are doing, there's a conference every year called Monitorama. It's a small conference. And uh, they've got all their videos online. I got to go to the first couple. They were here in Portland where I live. And uh, the organizers are fantastic and the sessions are amazing. There's lots of great kind of forward-looking, uh, way smarter people than I am who think a lot more about monitoring than I do, talking about the things that they're passionate about. So if you just go to monitorama.com, there's a full video archive of all those sessions. And that is where I would start if I wanted to go deeper down this rabbit hole. Fantastic, Josh. Thanks for spending time with Day 2 Cloud. And uh, virtual high fives to you out there for tuning in. If uh, if you have suggestions for future shows, we would love to hear them. You can hit up uh, me or Ned. I am at EC Banks. Ned is at Ned1313 on Twitter. And uh, if you'd like to be anonymous, Ned's got a website, nedinthecloud.com, and you could submit your show ideas via the form you would find there. Now, Day 2 Cloud is part of the Packet Pushers podcast network, and the Packet Pushers offer a weekly newsletter, absolutely free, Human Infrastructure Magazine. Him is loaded with the very best stuff we found on the internet, plus uh, our own feature articles and commentary. It's free. It doesn't suck. We don't you steal your privacy and like sell it off to people or anything like that, because that would be awful. So get your next issue, packetpushers.net slash newsletter. And until then, just remember, cloud is what happens while IT is making other plans. 